I don't know about y'all, but I love that. I love it so much. So creative, but also love. It draws attention to, yes, David was the shadow king, but shadows come because there's light coming from somewhere. I'm just throwing it out there from the get-go. Today's message is about David, but more importantly, it's about Jesus. I hope you've picked up on that already today. Because I don't want you to miss. It's great to go back and look at people like David. He is definitely a shadow king. Or like Esther, she was a shadow queen. I'm just telling you, these people that we have the privilege of knowing from these ancient documents, it's an amazing thing. But those are just illustrations of the real thing. And Jesus is the real thing. If you haven't picked up on all the episodes of this particular series, I encourage you to do so. You can do that through the Church Center app, rocksprings.online. I'll take you right where you need to be if you don't already have that app. <clears throat> but you'll find those in the archive. This isn't necessarily a series uh, in that you had to have the previous ones, more of an anthology. But we're going to look at David's life. Uh, we're going to fly out to about 30,000 feet and look down on his life overall today. Not just the times whenever he was out there facing giants with the faith that God had given them or uh, running for his life from Saul or learning from a significant woman in his life. So did any of you get to tell the story? Way to go, Abigail, last week? Yeah. Okay, three of you did. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was pretty significant. But anyway, Here's something that I've discovered uh, that, that sets, a, sets us in motion. And that is, uh, over time and watching people in different situations, celebrities, sports figures, pastors, leaders of all different kinds, it's the funniest thing that the more we try to make ourselves look bigger in somebody else's eyes, the smaller we actually appear to other people. Like, if you have to walk into a room and tell people that you are all that and a bag of chips, you're not, okay? The thing is, the more that you puff yourself up, the smaller you get. And yet we're all prone to wanting to, you know, I gotta, gotta, gotta stand taller, which is why I wore my boots today, two reasons. I did not want cold feet while I was preaching, and I wanted to be at least an inch and a half taller than I really am. That's a truth. But here's the, also a truth, and it's the opposite. And that is, the smaller that we attempt to make ourselves in terms of influence, trying to help people, the smaller and the less we make of ourselves, it's the craziest thing. And you can go back and check my notes and check your notes. The smaller that you make yourself, the bigger your reputation tends to be. Huh. What do you know? The smaller we try to appear, the larger, more influential we become with other people. Now, that's not a hard and fast rule. That's, it, it, it's not always that, but it is uh, it, just like Solomon and James had proverbs that they shared with us. I would say that is a proverb or a proverbial thing. I mean, that happens in real life and it happens in fiction. How many of you, well, that might be show who you're, real Marvel characters are, but um, I don't know if y'all know this, but uh, Captain America is, is my guy. My pajamas even have Captain America on them. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah. I wear them around the house. Yeah. He is a good example in fiction. The less you make of yourself, the more influential you become. 
If you're into the Lord of the Rings, anybody ever read that? Anybody ever seen the movies? Does the name Aragorn mean anything to you? Legolas? Yeah. People in real life, I have deep respect, even though I've never met the man. Gary Sinise is huge to me. Because even though he had all kinds of fame, he turned his fame around to honor those who've given a lot more than he has ever given. And he will say that. But it makes me have such respect for him. Back whenever he was playing football, J.J. Watts, whenever Houston got flooded and he did everything that he could within his power to use all of his influence and his money and his high profile, he did that not for himself but to help other people. The list goes on and on. You can pick people who... Um, and I'm telling you, you can go back to even the ones that are the fictional characters. This is not to say that people who make themselves smaller or try to you know, de-emphasize themselves are without fault. That's not the point. But I do find that more admirable than someone who comes in and tells me that they're God's gift. Yes? Anybody? I need somebody to talk back to me today. Because here's what I've noticed is that I haven't always been the age that I am. That's probably the most profound thing I will say today. Okay. In just a few short months, I'm going to be 63, which blows my mind. But here's what I have come to understand in my various chapters. Is that one of the best measures of... Um, individual maturity in having worked with people for so long in so many situations. One of the best tests of individual maturity is how people actually handle authority, how they handle power, how they handle influence. Because at some point, here's what I would say to each one of you, and I, I, I've said this for many years, and I will say it to you as well. And that is, at some point, you will be the most important person in whatever room you're in. You go, no, not me, because I'm not a leader. You can call it what you want, but at some point, everybody will be looking at you. You will have the authority, you will have the power, you will have the influence. It might happen in all kinds of situations. It might be roles that you chose. It might be a role that was actually thrust upon you because no one else would pick up the, the responsibility. It might happen differently in different chapters of your life. And I'm looking at a lot of our young people. Young people, you have no idea. I mean, do as much preparation as you can. But I'm saying you're going to be put into situations you had no conception that you would be in that spot. Be ready. Be ready. It might happen in your classroom. It might happen in the locker room. It might happen on your job site. It might happen in your kitchen or your living room, not just with your family, but friends who have gathered there. It might be happening on a ball field. And do you know that God even works in pickleball? I didn't know if y'all knew that, but he does. <laughs> but here's what I'm trying to get you to understand, and hopefully you will lean in and listen <clears throat> Pardon me, to what, we're, what I'm talking about today. I want you to be able to answer this question with some sort of certainty, and that is, how will I respond when it dawns on me that I am, in this moment, the most powerful person in the room? I'll say it again, in a, flipping the coin over. You need to know what that is, but you also need to know how to respond when you're not the most important person in the room. Because someday someone will be more important than you in the room. 
and you will, I, I wrote it in my notes, don't you hate it when any powerful or influential person, be that a leader, a, a coach, um, uh, the captain of the team, a parent, a boss, uh, or a politician, or whomever, don't you hate it when they leverage their influence for their benefit and they neglect the people that are around them? Doesn't something just go off inside of you? You go, that is not right. If you handle this kind of thing of power and influence and leadership in, 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 a, in, a, in an effective, truth-based way, it is a beautiful thing. People flourish. Systems come together. Life happens better whenever that is handled the right way. But whenever this kind of power, and it's so hard to... You know, it's not tangible, it's intangible, but it is just as powerful as electricity, man. When it is handled poorly, when it is handled selfishly, it is repulsive. It is divisive. It's disturbing. And it literally guts the courage of most people. So, I think it is wise to learn from both kinds of examples. Both the good handle the right way, and the bad, those that just really bring pain. Because one day, somebody's going to hand you the keys. I want you to be prepared. Somebody's going to hand you the title, the trophy, and everybody's going to be looking at you. What will you do? Or in the case of our guy that we've been looking at, David... Kind of partial to that name. I respond really well to it. But. but in this particular case, when somebody literally hands you the crown, you get to decide which way will I pull this lever. David was faced with this time and time again. We've kind of seen some of that in all the stories we've told so far. But today, I just want us not to look so much at an event that happened in his life as much as it is the path that he continued to follow. I truly believe this is why he is referenced as a, a man after God's own heart, patterned after God's own heart, a man who's chasing after God's own heart. Because you remember, there was a story before he, he became the story. He had a family just like you and me. How many of you are an only child? I just want to see how many people can be sympathetic to my situation. Okay, there's two. Yeah, I'm not sensing a lot of sympathy in the room. Um, yep. Just on the other end of the scale, anybody have like, I don't know, seven, eight, or nine siblings? There's a few hands. God bless you. Yeah. I have no conception of what that would be like. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> when David was roughly 13 years old, and you know, that's one of our favorite times as adults, is whenever human beings are around 12 or 13. <laughs> we go back and look at his story, and there's a guy named Sam. A lot of you, you're very, very formal. His given name was Samuel. But his friends called him Sam. Okay. Sam, who happened to be in the same line of work that I'm in, and that is, you know, trying to be a leader of people spiritually, 
Sam visits this family down in Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem's not all, it's, it's not that far. It's about five to six miles from Jerusalem, which was the center of all the activity. Anyway, he travels down there to Bethlehem, which would literally become known as the city or the town of David. Wow, I don't have one of those yet. I want a town of David. <laughs> anyway, Samuel's the prophet. God sends him on a secret mission. He tells Samuel as his, his, uh, his uh, mouthpiece, his, his ambassador. He tells him, Samuel, I need you to go, and I'm telling you to go to Bethlehem because there's a family there, and when you get to that family, I'm going to direct you when you get there that you are to anoint the next king of Israel. But I don't want you to tell anyone why you're there. Okay, those are fun times. So he goes to the house or the family of Jesse. Everybody say Jesse with me. Jesse. This is David's dad, okay? He invites, Samuel invites Jesse and all the kids that are at the house to come hang out with him because they're going to have a kind of like a church party. They're going to have sacrifices and prayers and all that. They're going to honor God. Uh, whenever you invite me to your house, we're not going to have sacrifices unless you mean that we're going to have steaks. That's what I think. But anyway, he invites Jesse, all the kids, they sacrifice, they have dinner on the grounds. It's kind of like a camp meeting. That's what it's like. Dinner on the grounds under the tabernacle. Now here's what's odd is that Samuel has been asked to do this by God while Israel has a king. His name is Saul. We've already established that. Israel already has a king. But Samuel is given this assignment that you need to go and anoint the next king. All right. Jesse goes through all of his sons introducing him to Samuel. But he doesn't bring David into the mix. He doesn't bring him into the conversation because the little runt, the 13-year-old, I mean is out uh, actually working while the rest of them are eating. And he's herding sheep. Okay? So Samuel assumes, as I would if I were given this assignment, that it's like I'm going to be introduced to this family of Jesse. It's got to be the eldest son because that's the way things just work. So Jesse brings out his eldest son and Samuel's saying, God, is this the one? And God says, no. And then he goes through all the sons and there's a bunch of them. I'm picking up in, in, in your notes and they're on the screen. This is written in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verse 6. When each one of these arrived, each one of these boys, each one of these young men, when they arrived, Samuel looked on uh, Eliab. I, I'm not Hebrew, so I just don't know how to pronounce these. Uh, just call him Eli, okay? Sam looked on Eli and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is right here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. So apparently he was taller than the average guy. Okay? The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The, who, who he is, the thinking, deciding, feeling part of him. This is a good place to just give some good words of advice, okay? It's what's inside a man that makes a man. Yep. So ladies, I'm telling you, do not be fooled by the outward appearance of a man or what cologne he is wearing. Do not be, okay? 
And I would say just as surely, it's the heart of a woman that makes a woman. So guys, do not be fool. Never mind, guys, we're hopeless. There's no, it's not, there is no other way. Sorry. It is good advice. We just always forget it. Okay. <laughs> Samuel and, you know, this whole exchange. Six sons later, Sam asks Jesse in verse 11, he said, are these all the sons that you have? Because he's going like, God sent me here. He hasn't said yes. I'm confused. And Jesse answered, well, there's still the youngest and he's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, well, then sit for him. I mean, send for him because we're not going to sit down until he arrives. Well, verse 12. So Jesse sent for him and had him brought in and he was glowing with health and he had a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said to Samuel, he said, rise and anoint him because this is the one. <laughs> it's awesome. Awesome. Can you imagine, snotty-nosed 13-year-old who's been out with sheep. He's 13-year-old. He already stinks. And then he's been hanging out with sheep. He stinks more. He comes in, doesn't have a clue about what's been going on. And yet, all of a sudden, this man, who's the man of God, and he knows that, anoints him with oil and says some strange prayer over him. And then it's like, okay, now what? And life just goes on. David shows up, gets a nod from God. Samuel never mentions why he's being anointed, you know, why, why he was anointing him. Uh, we do not know from the, the reading of the text. There's no indication that David knew at that point what actually had gone on. He just knew he had been anointed. But he obviously discovered some things along the way. Had to have been some conversations around breakfast or something because he discovered that he was something special in the terms of it's okay to trust God. It's okay to know what God says and to operate in faith with him because he goes and has this victory over Goliath. We've talked about that. He becomes an overnight sensation. Everybody, literally everybody knows his name. And then he has seven years of fame as he continues to grow into his early 20s. And man, he is the cat's pajamas. He's even brought into Saul's inner circle. He gets to hang out with the king. Jonathan, the king's son, becomes his mentor. He is in such good graces with Saul, the king, and his household that we know why Saul did it. But Saul says, hey, why don't you marry my daughter? He says, I don't want that one. I want this one over here. But he marries into the king's family. We see in 1 Samuel 18, 18. David's question in all of this, as he was playing, singing, becoming a better warrior, we know with all of his influence and just trying to, to be the guy that God wanted him to be, he still had this attitude and he said, Who am I? And what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? He said, I have no idea. There is no reasonable explanation as to why I have been favored in life to have this kind of influence. There's nothing in me that merits that. That's the kind of loyalty or the kind of thought process or belief that David had toward his loyalty to Saul. He didn't think of it as like, hey, everybody look at me. I am. I am the man. He would go, who am I? How did I get here? And what am I supposed to do with this? 
So he has about another eight years of national fame. That's whenever Saul starts feeling threatened. He puts a bounty on David's head. David freaks out. We talked about that in, in some of the earlier episodes. And he becomes a fugitive for several years. But we know that he's got all these guys around him. They become a fighting force, a guerrilla army, uh, running and hiding in, in what they would call the wilderness. And we've talked about that the terrain is very much like what we live with here in southwest Colorado. They were able to hide. But all the time he was running around trying to save his own life and do the right thing. We know because of the songs that he wrote, the lyrics that he wrote, he knew that God had chosen him for something. Something above and beyond what just would you know, just naturally happen. So he's living with this, I'm called, but he's living with this enormous amount of frustration. And often, I'm just telling you, young people, you will live with that tension in your life because God is actually forming something in the dark that he's going to bring forth in the light. But I would say, be like David. He said, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me. I'm being prepared for something that has to do with God's will, God's way, and God's timing. I'm going to say it again because we all need to hear that. If we would live our lives with that, that we're about God's will. What does he want? That we're about God's way. Let's do it not the way that feels good to us, but do it the way that he instructs us to do it, and to do it in God's time. Man, as far as I'm concerned, this is this David talking. That's probably the most difficult thing for me. I want to tell you about a couple of situations that show this attitude that he had over and over again. There were two opportunities, two very clear opportunities for him to kill Saul. And considering that he had probably found out that he was anointed to be the next king, you know, it's like, why not? We'll kill him and tell God that he died. You laugh, and the ones who are laughing along with me is, yeah, that kind of thought actually does go through my mind sometimes. Because all he had to do was make sure that Saul got knocked off, out of the way, then David could step in and claim the throne. One of these happens in the desert of Engedi, and I want to go to Israel, not right now, but I'm saying I do want to go to Israel. This is near the Dead Sea, very much like our terrain. I've seen it uh, in pictures. It's out east, southeast of Jerusalem. Saul and all of his army have tracked David and his men, his guerrilla warriors. He's been tracking David, and he thinks he's got him trapped, so they're closing in. I've told this in a recent message back earlier this year, but this, this, this story just needs to be told again. Because Saul, I love this, I love the honesty of Scripture. And that is, Saul's on the move, he's got David trapped, he thinks, and you know right in the middle of what you got to do, there's sometimes you just got to take a pit stop. Because you can be all dramatic, but sometimes when you got to go, you got to go. Okay. Some of you are going, I thought this was church. We're not supposed to talk about that kind of thing. The Bible talks about it. So David and company have been keeping an eye on Saul and company as they think they've got David you know, pinned down. David and a small contingent of his guys are actually huddled deep in a cave. And there are a bunch of caves in the Engedi region. Of all the caves that Saul could choose... To go and do his business in, it's the cave that David and his, 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 his troops are in. 
So, I mean, this just, I'm not going to riff on this because I'll get myself in trouble. But I'm just saying, <laughs> this is crazy. You got to see, they're way back in the dark. Saul comes in and they have literally, they're going to catch him with his pants down. That's what they're going to do. That's all. That's all. You can read for it yourself. 1 Samuel chapter 24. David's men and David are watching all of this and they say to David, and I'm sure they were whispering, it's like, this is the day. This is the day, this is the day the Lord has made. No, like, this is the day the Lord is spoke of when he said to you, I'm going to give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Because seriously, all that kidding aside, this is a very defenseless situation that Saul's in. And David, for just one moment, thinks that what these guys are whispering in his ear is a really, really good idea. And I won't go and preach that whole message. He, he, he almost makes a mistake. He almost does what he knows he ought not to do. So what he does, instead of sneaking up and killing Saul, he sneaks up to him while he's doing his business because apparently Saul has taken off his robe and it's laying there close to him. David sneaks up and with his knife he cuts off a corner of the king's robe. And then sneaks back over here with his guys. Verse 5. After all of this is wrapped up, David was, a, was conscience stricken for even having cut off the corner of the king's robe. Crawls back to his men. And he says to them, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, because he is the anointed of the Lord. I didn't have anything to do with it. I don't have anything to do with making that not so. Now, Saul finishes up his business, pulls himself back together, heads out, goes down from the cave, gets back on... Uh, you, you know, and they take off. And just before they start riding out of sight, David goes to the mouth of that cave, looks down on them while they're about to ride off, and he does something real manly, I'm sure, like, Yoo-hoo! <laughs> and apparently they were close enough, he is waving the corner of his robe that he had cut off. He's waving it. Everybody, all the soldiers, all Saul's soldiers look up and they start putting two and two together. And they realize what David could have done, but he did not do. And David speaks loudly so that everybody can hear. He says, may the Lord judge between you and me, Saul. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Because he said, you and I both grew up the same way, and as the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. This message is for me. If y'all don't get anything out of that, I'm sorry. That's, the, that's one of the toughest things I think you could ever do. But here's another one. 
Sometime later, and this would be even further south, but southwest of Engedi, in the rolling hills uh, of that particular area, David's scouts have tracked Saul's army. Because see, it was this back and forth. Saul's trying to find David. David escapes, but he keeps an eye on Saul's army. They're out in the rolling hills, and apparently there's some hills up on the side. David's scouts actually see that Saul's army is there. They've set up camp, and the way camp was set up in those days is that the king, since he was the leader of the military force, his tent would be in the very center of the camp, and then all the soldiers would put their tents in a complete circle around the king. Y'all with me? That's very important. Okay. They have bedded down for the night in the king's camp, in Saul's camp. Everything's quiet. David is up on one of the hillsides watching the camp, and he notices that it finally settles down. And one of the other things I love about David is that he didn't have to go around saying, you know, that he was a goody two-shoes, because he wasn't. He just tried to be a man who loved God and tried to do the right thing. So he knows that he's not supposed to hurt the king. But this particular, <laughs> this particular uh, passage leads us to believe that his right-hand man's name was Abishai. Everybody say that with me. Abishai. Okay, his right-hand man... He's watching along with David, and I can just hear him saying, it's like, hey, Abishai, I got a bad idea. Are you in? First <laughs> Samuel, verse 26. So David and Abishai went down into the valley where they were all camped out, went to the army by night. They had to have gotten through the perimeter. And there was Saul, it says, lying asleep inside the camp with Saul's own spear stuck in the ground near his head. Y'all picturing it in your head? Okay. They've snuck in. They're standing right next to the king. His own spear is right there at hand. Abner, who is Saul's bodyguard, and the soldiers who were supposed to be protecting the king were lying around him asleep. Abishai says, obviously whispering to David, he says, Today, God's delivered your enemy into your hands. In other words, the situation is absolutely perfect. Everything's coming together. God must have willed this, which I've told you all before. Just because your circumstances are coming together does not mean that God is in it. Just like when it's not coming together does not mean that God is not in it. But from his point of view, Abishai says, Today God's delivered your enemy into your hands, so it's time to power up and take what's yours. If you'll just let me, I will pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear that he has stabbed in the ground right beside you. David, think about it. Your face will be the last thing he sees. And I'm going to do it so good, I won't have to strike twice. I'm not going to mangle the body. This is going to be awesome. But David, again, we're at the 30,000 foot level looking down, but David whispers back to Abishai, don't you destroy him. Same thing he said before. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? The Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But he says, but the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. 
In other words, Abishai, this isn't about me. It's not about me powering up. And I refuse to violate the will of God and the plans of God and the timing of God in order to gain something or grab a hold of a promise or a blessing that somehow benefits me to the... To the I don't care about anybody else. I am not going to do this just because you or I think it's what I deserve. However, I'm not against having a little fun. So David tells Abishai to grab Saul's beard and his Yeti water bottle that was sitting right there. It's in there. You should read the Bible. It's fascinating. <laughs> grab the spear, grab the water bottle, sneak out of camp. And then from the nearby hill, as the sun is coming up, David yells, Hey, Abner! And he holds up the spear and the Yeti bottle and he says, Somebody guard you are. To which Abner's going, how did he? David said, you deserve to die for not protecting the king. But David refused to replace what God had put in place. Because it's God's will, God's way, God's time. The Philistines eventually kill Saul and they eventually kill Jonathan, who was David's mentor. David mourns these guys because he had respect for them. He mourned them even though they both stood between him and the throne that was apparently supposed to be his. I think it's amazing and we could stop there, but the story doesn't stop there. He is finally, now that these guys are not a part of the equation, he is proclaimed king in Judah, which is the one tribe that David is a part of. This is his tribe, what he grew up from. The other 11, because there's 12 tribes of Israel, the other 11 follow one of Saul's other sons, besides Jonathan, follows one of his, his name is Ishbosheth. That's, they just called him Izzy, I think is what they called him. But the other 11 tribes followed Izzy. And there were seven more years of war because Izzy was not a good leader. But I will just tell you, I've got to cut to the chase, he was murdered while he was napping in his own home. That's how much he was loved. The murderers, thinking they were doing a really good thing for David and his men, they did what I told you, don't judge then by the, the, the mores of our time. They cut off his head so they could take it back, so they could show that they had actually conquered the guy that everybody hated. So they take his head back to David, and they expect a reward because they had removed David's last obstacle to the throne. This is not in your notes, not on the screen, but I'm reading from 2 Samuel chapter 4. They brought the head of Izzi to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, Here's the head of the son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord, you, David, the king. Today the Lord has avenged all that against Saul and his offspring. And David looked at these guys, there's a couple of brothers who did it. He said, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble... What he's about to say is, God didn't tell you to do that. God didn't commission you to do that. I didn't need you to do that. God doesn't need your help. 
He said, I'm just telling you, God's been faithful to me. And when somebody told me Saul is dead and they thought that they were bringing me good news, I seized him and put him to death. That was the reward I gave him for the news. So how much more when wicked men like you have killed an innocent man in his own house, in his own bed, should I now not demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? He was hot. He was hot under the collar. Verse 12. So David gave the order to his men and they killed them and they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb in Hebron. This is the guy who could have taken the crown by force from Saul or his son, but he didn't because he said it's got to be God's will, God's way, in God's time. After Izzy died, the other 11 tribes finally come to their senses. They submit and they all come together, all 12 tribes, and they say, you know what, we want you to be our king. He had been a fugitive for eight years, another seven years of war with, Paul, uh, with Saul's son. All the tribes come to an agreement. Even in spite of all that stuff, we know that David is the rightful king. This is in your notes, 2 Samuel chapter 5. It says, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and they said... You, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who actually led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. In other words, David, we know that you've got the influence, you've got the power, you've got the ability but what we can't figure out is why haven't you grabbed that and run with it when you had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And if they had been paying attention, and if you're paying attention today, what happens next is the answer to your question. Because we've seen a lot of good stuff in David's life. But in my opinion, this is what showcases that he was actually great. He wouldn't have done this when he was 15 going out to meet Goliath. He would not have done this whenever he was, he, he was 22. He wouldn't have done this except that he had gained a measure of maturity over the years. Because watch what happens and why. Whenever they say, it's time for you to be crowned king. This is what he said in this verse 3. When all the elders of Israel had come to David at Hebron, they come to crown him. They're literally going to put a crown on his head. Hand him the power. He is literally the most important man in the room. He's going to be king. The king is law. His word is law. He doesn't need anybody's permission. They are, he is standing there facing men who did not support him when he was on the run. I'll read it again. When all the elders of Israel come to King David at Hebron. The king made a covenant with them at Hebron. Just a covenant is I'm going to put myself in this and you're going to put yourself in this. It's more than a contract, it is a promise. And he says, I'm going to have a covenant with you guys who weren't for me. And I don't need to do this because I am the king. So why would you do that? The king made a covenant with them at Hebron. 
before the Lord. I've said this in every one of these sessions. David knew he was aching, but he always understood he was not the king. He actually did this in public. And he said, you know what, guys? Our mutual authority, the one who rules over all of us, is God. And God's law and his way, that's what's going to reign supreme. Because I am not confused about the identity of Israel's true king. And verse 3 says, So, after this covenant that he gave them, they anointed David king over Israel. He was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. <laughs> we're going to pick up with that next week, and we're going to draw everything to a close. But I don't want you to miss the point from today. David waited 15 years for God to fulfill his promise that he had made to David. Do you ever get tired of waiting for God? Do you ever question God? Some of you are like, no, I was told I'm not supposed to do that. Well, you have to do a lot, a lot of explaining to the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Jeremiah. He's got shoulders big enough. You can question him. You might not always like the answer he gives. He had waited 15 years for God to give him what he'd promised. And during that 15 years of character school that took place under all kinds of circumstances... I think one of the things that David walked away from with a graduate you know, a degree is that leadership is influence. If you have influence of any kind over anyone in any room, you have leadership. And leadership, influence, power, whatever you want to call it, is a stewardship. It's not about you, it's given to you, and you have to steward it or manage it. And you will manage it either well or you will manage it Poorly. I think what he walked away saying is, you know what? Even, even kings have to be accountable. Here, listen. If the, if, out of all the ones that I've, I've brought to you in this series, this one probably is the one that cuts deepest for me. I find David's life so great and so inspiring. He didn't pay back evil for evil. Abigail helped him with that. I think it is inspiring that he did not use his power or position for himself. I find it so, so valuable that he trusted God enough to not take matters into his own hands even when he wanted to. I think he is admirable because he leveraged his influence for the benefit of others. I think that is inspiring, but it is not enough to be inspired. A lot of you come to Rock Springs or you tune into Rock Springs because we do try to inspire, but inspiration is not enough. Christ followers... What I'm telling you today is not inspirational, it's required. It's not just inspired, it's required. David's life is not about David. He is the shadow king. It's about Jesus. 
Because you see, about a thousand years later, about 20 miles from where all of that just took place, this is actually happening in the town of Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem. A descendant who's actually a part of that same tribe, he is born, he grows up, and he's going to model the same kind of greatness, only he's going to take it to the next level. And then he's going to add a twist. And one of the eyewitnesses to this particular event wrote it down for us. His name was John. And in his gospel, the 13th chapter, John was there. He saw it. He heard it. He smelled it. He tasted it. In chapter 13, verse 1, it was just before the Passover festival. They were all celebrating the, you know, the Hebrews released from Egypt. Jesus gathered with his 12 closest disciples. John said, now that I look back on it, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Jesus also knew, just like David, he had been anointed, he had been chosen, he had been commissioned for a special work. He was unrecognized and he was abused. He was put down by those in authority. They chased him, they hunted him, they badgered him all the time. Sounds just like what they did to David. Jesus knows in this moment when he's sitting there with his closest followers in Jesus' situation, he realizes that when in the next few hours, because this was happening on a Thursday evening, he knows that he's going to be arrested, taken through six different mock unofficial trials. He'll be abused, tried, convicted. He will be executed. And he will be executed by the very people that he is there to rescue. He's going to be facing all his enemies and Jesus will become their ally. In this moment, just like David, Jesus establishes a covenant. But he doesn't do it with just the tribes of Israel. He does it with the whole world. And if you didn't know, you are part of the whole world. He is about to make this covenant. He's going to sign it with his own blood. And that is why, my friends, it is called the new covenant. We do not live under the old covenant. It has been superseded by a better covenant. Because Jesus is the Savior, not only of the world, but of me and you and every rotten thing that we have ever done. He is the New Testament. And what happens next, it moves us from being inspired to what is required. In verse 3, John says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power, Jesus' power, and that He had come from God and He was returning to God. Jesus had the power, even though He didn't have the crown. And that happened all the time He was here. He had the power. The old people of my life used to sing, He could have called 10,000 angels. But he didn't. He had the power, but he did not have the crown. He had the authority. He did not have the title. But I'm just telling you, sitting there with those guys, Jesus is literally holding all the cards, and he decides to do something so radical. That's why John said, you have to know about this. In verse 4, he says, I was there. Jesus got up from the table where we were all sharing this supper. He was the most powerful person in the whole room. And John's kind of asking us, if you're the most powerful person in the room, what would you do? Jesus got up from that meal and he takes off his outer garment. It makes you guys unnervous. He's going to undress in front of us? It's like, well, okay, imagine the feeling that Jesus takes off his outer garment. He is dressed in 
the minimal stuff. He ties a, 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 a towel around his waist. This is so awkward. He's the rabbi. He's the leader. He's the one who's older. There's so much emotion in this room. I'll bet somebody in that group of 12 said, you know, Jesus, we got people for that. Apparently, Jesus just keeps on and ignores them. In verse 5, they said, John writes, he said, and after that he poured water into a basin, and then he knelt in front of each one of us and began to wash his disciples' feet. That's 24 stinking feet. And then he would dry them with the towel that he had wrapped around them. And then he sets the basin aside, and then he puts his clothes back on, and I can imagine Jesus sitting down with a slight little grin on his face. Because I'm, I would have been right there with him. I'm just telling you, these guys tended to be a little slow on the uptake. And Jesus says, now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. He said, I've set the example. I'm literally the most important person in this room, and I knelt down and washed your stinking feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done because very truly, if there is anything I want you to get, that's what he's saying, I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, are you paying attention, gentlemen? Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you talk about them and dissect them and write theological tomes about them. No, he said, you'll be blessed if you do them. In other words, he said, if I'm not too good to wash feet, then neither are you. Because literally, you can see it in all of Jesus' teachings and what Paul explained to us. When you start thinking you're something, when you start thinking that you're somebody, when somebody hands you the keys to the car, when you get the, become the class president, when you receive the scholarship that nobody else got, when you get the MVP award, when you get the applause, when you get the promotion, the spotlight, when all the eyes are on you, when you're handed that crown and the authority and the influence that goes with it, you better be looking for more feet to wash. Because it's not about you. It never has been about you. And the funny thing is, is that if you keep pursuing it as though your life is about you, you will never have the satisfaction that your soul longs for. It's the funniest thing when you get your eyes off yourself and all the things that you feel and think, and you start living like Jesus asked you to live, and that is to be selfless, to be humble. When you do that, all of a sudden, that thinking, deciding, feeling part of you suddenly feels satisfied. I'm just telling you, after all these years, I still say the best indicator of maturity in following Jesus is how you handle your authority, your power, and your influence. And you're going to have your share at some point. Like I said, it's going to be in all kinds of situations, roles, and chapters in all kinds of environments. What are you going to do? Because you need to decide now. What are you going to do when it dawns on you that you are literally the most Powerful person in the classroom or the locker room or the boardroom or the living room. I'm going to tell you this and then we'll be done. 
you already wear a crown in some situation for somebody somewhere. You say, no, I don't. Yep, you do. You're a father or a mother or a grandparent or a sister or a brother that your siblings turn to even though you don't think they do. Your husband or a wife. You manage people. You manage something for someone. You're an owner. You're the captain of a team. You're an administrative assistant. You have authority somewhere with someone. And I tell you, you and I both would be so wise if we would live like David, if we could live like the shadow king. Because David learned it, but Jesus modeled it. Don't ever forget, these stories are not about David. They're about Jesus. You want something to fill in? Here's what the fill in is today. When you're the most powerful person in the room, you look for ways to leverage your power for the benefit of the other people in the room. When you're the most powerful person in the room, I beg of you, I plead with you, make a commitment to God. God, I am going to leverage the power you've entrusted to me for the benefit of the other people in the room, just like David did, but more importantly, just like Jesus did. David learned it in the desert. Jesus learned a little bit of it in the desert as well. But Jesus modeled it, and he did it from start to finish. And I'm here to tell you, if you're a Christ follower, this is your takeaway. This is not inspirational. This is required. This is the way we're supposed to live. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. You say, how do you know that? Don't ever forget what Jesus said. He said, for even Son of Man, speaking of himself, he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. Rock Springs, I've said this is a conclusion of a lot of messages, but I still believe it every single day. Imagine if we, as a group of people, both in this campus and the online campus, if we actually made a commitment to live that way and then we stayed true to our commitment. Imagine. Imagine. See, this is where people would go, you know what? It's like you got a teenage son and they got a teenage daughter and they look at you whenever you talk about Jesus and you try to live this way, what they say in private is like, those people are so weird, but I sure hope our daughter marries their son because he's a good guy. I'm just telling you, the influence is just incalculable. What would happen if we actually leveraged all of our influence that way? I think, here's the thing I would say. That kind of selfless behavior that Jesus commanded literally changed the world one time. I believe it still will if we will live it out. You get it? Okay, good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to look at your word, to learn from your word, to be able to just talk about it and show that it, we don't have to make your word relevant, Lord. It's already relevant. We just have to figure out where it fits in our life. You were trying to communicate to us deep and abiding, eternal truth thousands of years ago. And then you literally sent your word, Jesus, into this world. And if people will listen to him, 
if they will learn to follow him and then learn to love him and learn to obey him, life gets better. In fact, God, unless we come to Jesus, we can't have new life, we can't have a better life, and we really can't learn to be better at life. But with Jesus, we can. Sir, ma'am, maybe what you heard today gives you enough to say, I want to trust Jesus because of the kind of servant he was. Then right now, just the most honest part of who you are, say, Jesus, I'm a part of that colossal collection of moral fallops. I have nothing to bring to you. I'm a screw-up. My sin, my mistakes, everything. But I bring everything that I am to you, and I surrender it to you. Would you please forgive me of my sin and give me your righteousness instead? Lord, please do that in people's lives. Because that way, we get to be born again, and we, we live a life that never ends. We get our past forgiven. We have a purpose for living. We have a home in heaven. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who made brand new commitments again today. Lord, that's who I want to live like. In this moment, Lord, we're going uh, to punctuate this with a, a song of victory. Uh, uh, we know you've got this in control. Help us to trust you, Jesus. Bless our lives, our families, our community, our world because of what happened here today. And I say it in Jesus' name. Amen.